0: You are a political animal. It's the last in our series on what on, on being human. And when you hear that title, you are a political animal, I wonder what thoughts come to mind. What's your immediate reaction? At um, 11 o'clock last week, one of the ladies was telling me as soon as she saw that, she, she thought, I am not. I, and I uh, I get that. I, I think probably there's a few of us who might, might have that kind of response. And they always say that there's two topics you should avoid at extended family meals, religion and politics. Well, today we're diving into both, ignoring that wise advice and uh, we'll see what what comes of that. I I, I imagine that there's gonna be possibly some things that are a little bit provocative or challenging. This is an, it's not intended to be provocative, it's intended to be a faithful exploration of how God's people engage with the world around them. But please come and have a chat with me after the service or arrange a time to have a coffee during the week if you'd like to chat further about some of this. Does anyone know where that term, political animal, first came from? So, Aristotle, in about 400 BC, he... Used that term, coined that phrase, political animal. And he wrote this. He said, Man is by nature a political animal. And he who is w- without a state is either above humanity or below. He is the tribeless, lawless, homeless one, or hearthless one, he, he said. He may be compare- compared to a bird which flies alone. And Aristotle's point was that humans are inherently social and communal beings. And that because this is true, we naturally, in fact, we can't help but create a politic as we organise our common life together. Now, when we think of politics today, and Annette mentioned this earlier, we immediately think of systems and structures of state and national governments and departments that institute laws and rule over us. But we can talk about politics in all kinds of other contexts too, church politics, workplace politics, family politics. In fact, politics exists whenever and wherever people are in relationship with each other. So I wanted to to define politics in this way, and it's really important to listen to this definition, or the sermon's not going to make a whole lot of sense. Politics is the way a community of people organise and order and attend to their common life together. It's connected with questions of power and authority and rule of processes and systems for decision-making and maintaining order and hopefully seeking the common good. So what we're going to do today is to look at what Scripture has to say about politics. My hope is that this will provide a, a framework for thinking through how we faithfully interact and speak into the political sphere of the society that we live in. Let's, uh, let's pray as we come to God's Word. Lord God, we, uh, we thank you that you are here with us as we gather together as your people. And Lord, we know that you call us to be your people and to live your way and that your word and your truth touches on every part of what it means to be human. And so, Lord, now may you challenge us and confront us and help us to understand how we might respond in worship and honour of you in the political sphere of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing to say is that the word politics itself is not found anywhere in Scripture. Uh, It comes from the Greek word polis, which means city, and and that, that word's quite common. In Scripture, but but the act of politics, the organising and governing of public life, is everywhere in Scripture. I want to start in Genesis, where we discover right from the beginning that we are created as political beings. Aristotle was not far from the truth, I think. Can we have the next slide, Murray? So, So Genesis reads. Let us make mankind in our image. This is God speaking, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, from the very beginning, creation and human community was given order and organization. You know, the story of Genesis describes God creating the physical creation drawing out of chaos, land and water and sky, bringing order to a chaos. But it's not just in the physical creation that he does that. He does it with human relationships and community as well. And so there's this kind of proto-government established where God is ruler, that he bestows upon humanity the rule over creation. There are tasks then given out for the flourishing of life and even basic laws for this Eden community. Eat from any tree, but not from the tree of knowledge. What I find quite fascinating about this is that there's this politic, this proto politic that existed before the fall. There's a goodness and a rightness about the ordering and organizing of. Of life. Now, I imagine for, for some of us the word politics often stirs a negative reaction, but when community life is well ordered to promote flourishing politics can be, dare I say it, even beautiful. How often do we hear politics described as beautiful? Not very often, but When politics works for the flourishing of all, it can be a beautiful thing. But what all of this means is that we can't actually escape politics. Again, Annette referred to this earlier as well. But I was listening to an interview with a man the other day who labelled himself as a Christian anarchist. And I was a bit surprised to find that a Christian anarchist, at least as he described it, is not someone who rebels or incites riots, but someone who believes so firmly that God is the only king that they refuse to engage in secular politics at all, and would even say that voting is wrong. So this was in an American context. The problem is, sure, you can try to separate yourself from politics, but each and every day, all of us will engage in and benefit from the organizing and ordering of human community. How much of our lives that we enjoy in this area do we take for granted is enabled by the fact that we live under a a government where there is order and a seeking generally of the common good. Perhaps the closest you could get to actually escaping politics would be to escape community life altogether and to live as a recluse. And yet even then you're still bound by laws. And so the question is not, should I engage in the political sphere of life? But how should I engage in secular politics as a follower of Jesus? Next slide, thanks Murray. As we move along in scripture, we we find that not only are we inherently political beings, but that God himself is concerned with politics too. And I say this because God is deeply and consistently concerned for how peoples and tribes and nations live out their shared life. He calls governments to account and establishes kingdoms. He topples thrones and anoints rulers. God cares about politics because he cares for his world. We've already been exploring this in the book of Deuteronomy this, this year. When, when God saves his people and calls them out of Egypt, he takes them to Mount Sinai. And there he appoints leaders to make decisions and establishes a pseudo-government of sorts and with the goal of flourishing for all. God, as Israel's king, acts as Israel's king to direct and order their common life towards this goal of flourishing. And there's no part of human existence that's untouched by God's rule. There's laws for family life, for farming and agriculture, for eating and washing, for loving the outcast and dealing with violence and infidelity. God gives his people this comprehensive politic for how they are to live life as his people that's characterized by love for God and love for neighbor. And it's in stark contrast to the other nations around them. Next slide. Thanks, Murray. As we move ahead in the biblical story, Jesus comes on the scene pronouncing that the kingdom of God is at hand. And when Jesus pronounced the kingdom of God, he was making a political statement. It wasn't just a political statement, but it was a political statement. He was saying that a new kingdom with a new way of life under the rule of God was emerging. And as he went around living out this kingdom in the public square, it began to transform common social life. People were freed from demons and raised from the dead. A new power like no other had entered into human existence. Prostitutes and tax collectors were invited to dine at the table of the king as the social order was upended. The poor and the blind, the outcast and the sinner, were healed and forgiven and loved. Jesus didn't come merely to save souls. But to create a kingdom where every part of human existence would come under the lordship of Jesus. As we uh, continue to work through the book of Acts this year, we're going to see how this continues to play out in the life of the early church as the Holy Spirit fills God's people and draws them into a new way of being human, a new way of common life, a new politic. This, this shared common life began to emerge in Jerusalem. And you might remember that picture at the beginning of Acts of the church selling what they had, giving generously so that nobody was needy or poor. And as they did that, as God, as the kingdom of Jesus began to upend Jerusalem life, it drew people from all over. Christianity is political because we worship the king of kings we sang a song before king of kings that's a political statement here is the god we worship now you've probably heard it said keep your religion out of politics again Annette referred to this a little bit before and maybe you agree with that to some extent But the problem is if if politics is about how we organise and attend to our common life together and we believe that the gospel of Jesus calls us into a certain way of living in community, then they will bump into each other and overlap. It's inevitable. Now, the separation of church and state in this world is a really wise thing. But that doesn't mean that politics gets to escape the lordship of jesus we're reminded in fact to take an interest in political life whenever we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven so far i've suggested that We're necessarily political beings who are called to attend to the good ordering of common life under the lordship of Jesus. But I want to turn to the question now, how do we, as God's people, engage with the political sphere of our society? As we uh, look at the New Testament, Scripture has quite a lot of wisdom to give us on how we engage with governments and authorities and the politics of our secular society. But there's this interesting tension throughout scripture between submission and subversion. On the one hand, we we have passages like Romans 13 that we heard earlier and where it says, next slide, Murray, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except that which God has established. Or in 1 Peter, it says, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. Now, this was in a time and place where the government was not as trustworthy as it is today. And this is a big call for Peter and Paul to be making, a costly call. But Paul and Peter both recognise that government and authorities who order social life even though they can be corrupted and are imperfect, play an important role under God in restraining evil and preserving justice. If there was no ordering of common life, we would only have chaos. It would, be not, it would not be good for human flourishing. Paul even, he, he often used politics to open up doors for him to preach the gospel. He wasn't afraid of calling himself a citizen of Rome and using that to his advantage. Next slide, Murray. Yet scripture also gives us these stories of God's people acting as a subversive presence in the political sphere. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue and a throne into the fiery furnace. Or Daniel who disobeyed the law of Darius and continued to pray to God and was thrown to the lions. In Acts, Peter and John are told by the authorities to stop speaking about Jesus in Jerusalem and they respond, we can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. Then later in Acts 17, there's a mob that comes up against Paul and it's actually a bit of a dicey situation for Paul when this mob comes up against him and They accuse him of two things. Firstly, that Christians have turned the Roman Empire upside down. And secondly, they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. It wasn't lost on the crowds that these Christians were preaching and living a gospel politic that challenged and subverted the ways of Rome. Now, this subversion didn't look like violence. If we look at the stories, and as we follow the stories of Acts, it didn't look like violence. It doesn't look like rebellion or law-breaking. It looked like God's people being totally committed to Jesus as king and living that out in their common life. Now, subversion is a loaded word, and it's a word that I want to use with some caution here. Because if we think our role as God's people is to subvert the Secular political sphere, then that could be used to justify all kinds of unhelpful and civil uh, oh, oh, disobedience of a kind, which, uh, I think can be quite unhelpful. Uh, I think it's helpful for us to remember that the greatest act of political subversion that the world has ever known took place when Jesus submitted to the power of Rome and was crucified at her hands on the cross submission and subversion met the political world of the roman empire was not turned upside down by civil disobedience or rebellion but by a god who had such a commitment to human flourishing that he would suffer even die to see it happen i want to suggest that subversion means to share in our King's beautiful vision for human flourishing and to live that out even when it's costly to ourselves. So how do we live out this tension of submission and subversion as God's people? That's a question that every Christian needs to ask in their own particular context the way that we answer that question in an Australian democracy will be very different to how Christians in China answer that question under a communist regime. But I, I just want to share five suggestions for us in the Australian. Hello. Hello. Can I Firstly, have some towels, please? Yeah. Before we engage in the political I speech, I just want so to be so proud proud and, and, uh, as God's people we belong to well, for well, and foremost. Well, for yeah. and, yep. sure. and this kingdom of God has its own politic, its own view of how human life is best lived. This kingdom of God is not liberal or labor, it's not green or Christian Democrat every human political party or organization is fallen and imperfect. That means that as we engage in the politics of our society and think about voting, every party will have policies and, and certain things they, they believe that reflect a vision of human flourishing that we could align ourselves with. But each political party will also Thank have you. policies that we should just Thank you very much we should engage in secular politics with a critical eye and the only thing we should be fully partisan to is the kingdom of god next slide secondly i want to encourage us to make use of the avenues given to us to impact politics we're really fortunate and i think we take this for granted we live in a time where we have so many avenues afforded to us for speaking into the political sphere and not just afforded to us encouraged for us to use we should be thankful for that and celebrate it it's a gift so i want to encourage us to use those avenues to petition to write letters to speak with local members to protest peacefully and to form action groups, and for us to be praying for those who live in places where they don't have the same opportunities to speak into the ordering of social life. Next slide, Murray. So they don't be surprised if governments continue to disappoint us. Every human politic will be disappointing because they are but poor and frail shadows of the kingdom of God. Yet when we are disappointed, let's continue to live out a kingdom vision of common life here in our churches and towards our community around us, even when that is costly. Let's pray that God might bring about change and, and use his church to show the world a better vision for life. Next one, Murray. Fourthly, I'll need to explain this a little bit. Remember and discern the straight and jagged lines. What I mean is this. There are certain things that we as people who belong to the kingdom of God should be uncompromising on, where God's word is absolutely clear about how life is best lived. But when we talk about politics, there are a lot of jagged or blurry Lines as well. Matters where the solution is not so clear and where Christians will disagree. Let me give you a, an example with the current debate around the voice to Parliament. I would hope that it is a pretty straight line that God cares for people of all tribes, nations, and tongues, and we have a responsibility under God to love our indigenous brothers and sisters in this nation. I don't believe you can read and accept God's word and argue against that. But when it comes to the question of how to best do that in the political realm, what policies and laws to enact, well, I think we're kidding ourselves if we think we know the best solutions to that. There's a humility that's needed in that conversation in recognizing the complexity of those solutions. I've heard many good reasons to support the voice to parliament, but I have much more to think about and learn as well. And I've heard some genuine concerns raised by people as well. One of the great causes of division around political issues in the church is when we treat these jagged or blurry line issues as if they're straight lines, or when we assume that because a person has a particular view about a blurry-lined issue, we we lump them in a particular camp and assume their underlying beliefs. When we uncompromisingly tie ourselves to or dismiss one solution without critical reflection or humility to accept that there could be another way. You know, we should talk about these matters together. Let's do so with humility and, and grace. Last slide. Finally, continue to worship. Worshipping Jesus is a political act. We might not realise that in Australia where we're free to worship Jesus. But in China, it's very clear that the act of worshipping Jesus is a political act when the government wants to stop you from doing so. Gathering each week to proclaim in word and song, spirit and mind, that Jesus Christ is our King, who alone is worthy of all praise and honour and glory, reminds us where our ultimate allegiance lies. Every human kingdom and politic will fail and fall to the sands of time, but the kingdom of God stands forever and will one day fill the whole earth. How about we pray together now for God's kingdom to come for the good of the whole earth? Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you that you care for life. You care for common life, for the way communities interact with each other. You care so much that you've created your own kingdom, your own community, your church, where you call us to live. As people of grace and love, submitting to and subverting other kingdoms, as we look forward to the day where your kingdom will fill the whole earth. And Lord, we pray that your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, may you give us wisdom as we navigate political conversations. There is, may you help us to be able to discern. The difference between the straight and the jagged lines. May you give us humility and grace as we enter into conversations with each other. Give us an ability to listen well. Well, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.